Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry at Midwestern Seminary. And I'm here once again, back by popular demand, or at least by my demand. <laughs> no, it's popular demand because some guy on Twitter said, hey, I'd like to hear a little more. There you go. The people have spoken. The person has spoken. The person has spoken. Well, you know, we'll, we'll pluralize like the editorial we. We'll just say the Twitter y'all. The people have spoken. Bring Drew Dick back. It wasn't enough publishing talk. Uh, no, we actually did get uh, quite a bit of good feedback on that um, episode. And I felt like I think I was under a time crunch. I had to stop it. But even if we had kept going, it would have been one of the longer eps. So it was good that we're kind of breaking this up. We can do kind of a two-parter. Uh, Drew Dick is an acquisitions editor. Is there a fancier title? Are you like a senior something of whatever at, at Moody Publishers? Content visioneer. Yeah, I need to I need to gussy it up <laughs> a little bit, but no, I'm afraid it's just acquisitions editor. Okay, acquisitions editor at Moody Publishers, also a author of uh, several books in past and forthcoming. And I've got him back on here because he's fun to talk to and He'll let me ask him uncomfortable questions about the, the Christian publishing world. So on the last episode, we talked a little bit about, gosh, you know, the trends in publishing and platform. That's a constant question that always comes up. Do I need to have a big platform to get published? How do you get published? All those sorts of things. I thought maybe we could dig into some nitty gritty because I think there's folks, not just aspiring authors, but but even just people who'd be curious, but even for those who are sort of you know, trying to break in to getting published. They wanted about the process. So like yeah. what happens? We talked, I think we talked right up to the the brink of a manuscript comes in either by an agent. I think we talked about that by an agent or unsolicited into what they call the slush pile. And somehow it makes its way to you. And then you or someone in your position at another publisher says, oh, there may be something to this. I like this pitch or I like this query letter or this proposal. And let's see where it go from there. And then what happens from that point, Drew, right, is you present to a committee, a, a pub board, I think it's sometimes called, maybe it's something else. What happens there in the in in the pub board meeting? Yeah, well, so first of all, the ideas or the proposals will come to me and I'll evaluate them. I'm kind of the first filter, right? And so if I think it's an idea that has merit that that I'm excited about, that I think is a right fit for us, then like, yeah, you, you said, I'll present it to the pub board. And that's just like a meeting that we have usually every week. And, you know, I do my little spiel. It, you know, it's funny role because it's like, People, oh, you're an editor, you work with words all day. That's true. It's partly like sales though, right? Because you're trying to sell the author to the pub board and sometimes the publishing house to the author. So it's an interesting <laughs> role. And so, yeah, and basically we're looking for ideas that are good. Is that cleared up? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Not. Well, you're not looking for bad ideas. I, no, I not understand. the bad, not this year. You know, that was last year. This year we're looking for good ideas. Yeah, and of course that's very subjective, right? What's a good idea? Uh, we have a few criteria that, is there an audience clamoring for it? Like, is this an idea people are interested in? Maybe you want to write a haunting memoir about your childhood, but unless you're famous, that's probably not going to, you know, fly. Right. Uh, so there, there've got to be people looking for it. Is it kind of fresh? Is it sort of counterintuitive? Because you might want to write a book about Christian community. And it's like, whoa, there are a lot of books on Christian community, right? But do you have something kind of interesting or surprising to say about that? And then, yeah, so if it kind of passes that, and of course, is it well 
written? Can this person execute? Can they actually write a book? And we're judging you right from the start, by the way, on your emails, <laughs> on the proposal, right. of course. Right. Uh, anyway, and so if it kind of passes those tests for me, then yeah, I'll present it to our, and if it's the right fit, of course, for us, then I'll present it to the team. And yeah, I wish people sometimes have the illusion that I can make unilateral decisions and just, I'm a gatekeeper and can <laughs> say which books we're going to publish. Sadly, that is not the case. I presented the team and then there's a whole discussion, a vote. And then it even after that goes to a leadership team that then makes the final decision on whether to approve it. So yeah, so that's there, a broad yeah. overview. So there's literally a vote. The pub board at some point decides who, who, who thinks we should move forward with this and who doesn't, or who thinks the next level should see this. And there's literally it's, a it's hands- secret ballot though. So that's is it? Cool. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. That's a an insider. Although you, you, well, and I don't know if this is the same in every publishing house, but uh, it is with ours, but you can usually tell just by the way the conversation's going, how people sure. are going to vote who, you know, someone's saying a lot of things that against the project, they're probably going to vote now. So <laughs> it's not a big mystery. Yeah. 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 Is it a simple majority somebody needs or do they need like a super majority to get beyond the public? <laughs> like 75 percent got to. Yeah, no, it's yeah. If it's like, you know, half and half, then it's like, OK, maybe we need to come back to the author, refine the angle, rethink this somehow. But yeah, usually we're looking for not a it doesn't have to be unanimous, but hopefully a, a super majority of some kind. Yeah. OK. You know, this is the level at which my first couple of books kept stalling out at. I would have, well, and when I started, I was I was writing fiction. So, you know, originally I was trying to get published as a novelist. And my very first book, I was super excited because I got an agent with it. And then it didn't take him long to get an editor. And I didn't know anything about the process. That's the thing. Like, so I had an editor that was interested at, you know, a little publishing company. It was actually an imprint that did speculative fiction you know, type things and editor was, and so I'm just pumped. I'm like, I'm going to get published. And <laughs> the next thing I know I'm, it's being explained to me that actually the editor is, isn't the one who decides that there's, you know, these businessmen and others who are speaking in and they decided that it wasn't a marketable. Thing, so many hurdles. Know? Yep. Yeah. And, and so what are they deciding? So is the pub board, I mean, are there creatives at that table or is it marketing business people who are think who are just wondering, will this sell? Both, um, at least in our okay. case. Again, I can't speak for the whole industry, but yeah, and sure. that's what I love about our process. We have editors there. We have marketing, publicity. That is the people who are lining up interviews to promote a book, sales, marketing, publicity. I'm trying to think who else. Oh, some of the creative folks who are designing covers. So everyone who will have their hands on the project, or well, I shouldn't say everyone, but at least a representative from each group that'll be involved in making the book are there, which is great because they say things you don't even think of, right? You know, I might fall in love with that idea and they're like, man, we can't sell this uh, for this and this reason. Or the design people might be like, wow, I could totally see us doing a cover for this, like this. So anyway, it's, yeah. it's really good to have all that different input. Gotcha. The pub board to me was a shock that I, there were people who hadn't read the book, which when you're doing nonfiction proposals, you don't usually write the whole thing necessarily. Maybe for a first-time author, uh, perhaps you would. But no, I, I um, advise people not to do that, especially with non. I know yeah. fiction's different, but with nonfiction, don't write it on spec. That is the speculation that'll get published, because then you have yeah. this 200-page manuscript, and then a publisher wants to get their fingers in there and say, "Hey, no, can you go this way?" And you're going, "Yeah, no, the baby's here." I don't. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Too late. Yeah, yeah. So it was a little uh, mysterious to me, and then. What I what was communicated to me was just that the pub board did not think it was a marketable, you know, that, that they, you know, that it wouldn't sell, I suppose. And then 
that imprint. Uh, I had a little bit of Schadenfreude later because they folded like a year and a half later. I thought, see if oh, you had just published judgment. my book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't exist anymore. And maybe, you know, things could have been different if you had taken other world and, you know. Okay. So then it goes to, you pass the pub board stage. It goes before a senior leadership. I'm, I'm assuming this is like the actual, the publisher, the senior publishers or whatever they're called. Right. Um, they, and they have a sector. Yeah. If they raise it, the, the, the book can go forward. <laughs> No, is it like I'm, the gladiator thumbs up, thumbs down? Like you're looking <laughs> that up would be better. out of the Coliseum into the stands and yep. yeah, yeah, the, the author right there. Yeah. Feed him to a tiger. <laughs> anyway, no. Yeah. Usually the leadership team ratifies the decision of the pub board. Right. So they're just looking for like any red flags like, oh, wow. Are there legal concerns here? Big picture theological concerns that no one saw, you know, things like I that. See. So they're the kind of final stamp of approval. But like I said, usually they don't go against the, the publishing board. Yeah. Okay. So, but we like the process all mysterious and opaque on purpose. <laughs> That's the. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what's mysterious and opaque are these darn the royalty or the the sales statements that come in every quarter. Don't even ask. I, I just I, got one from a publisher a couple weeks ago, and my wife, admittedly, my wife has the analytical, mathematical business brain. She worked for Lifeway for twenty you know years or so in the retail division. She knows spreadsheets. She knows numbers. She knows the, the retail speak and, and sales speak. And she couldn't make heads or tails of it. So I I almost like I want to send it. I don't even know how, like how the book sold. All I know is like I just look. Is there a check in here? Right. Is there <laughs> is there some red lobster money? That's what we call it. When you get the, the from like the old books, you know, um, I got a I got a, a twenty nine dollar check the other Ooh. day. For Kriegel is my very first book. Don't spend uh, it all in one place. They published it uh, 14 years ago. And wow. uh, a few, it still sells, you know, like That's awesome. a handful hey. of copies every year. And it earned out the advance, obviously. And it did. And I got, I got this check for 29 bucks. I was like, here's the red lobster money, baby. Who like <laughs> <laughs> living large. So I don't know how to make on. heads or tails of those things, but the process after, all right, it's a go. It's a green light. Your book's been accepted. There's a contract that's usually drafted or a deal points memo is usually the first step before a contract and send that to you or to your agent. And it'll say here it's 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 basically the major bullet points. We want to publish this book under this working title. And this is the specs. Uh, We expect this book to come out at this point. This is what we uh, will pay you. And typically there is uh, an advance, which is maybe we need to help our readers understand this. The advance is against sales right so right exactly what it sounds like it's an advance against future royalties right so, so you gotta earn that money back. that amount before you get any extra now if you don't earn out okay. the advance if your book you, doesn't you get sell well it. enough you get yeah. to keep it yeah the, the publisher right. eats that that's just how the business works but yeah the exciting thing is when you do earn out that advance and you get the 27 dollar uh check <laughs> that's the goal. right Right, right, right. Now, so I've got, you know, there's a few guys at Midwestern every now and then they'll get a book deal with somebody and, um, you know, they'll get a you know publishing offer. They'll text me, hey, what do you think of this? What are the thought, you know, and they don't have an agent necessarily. And and I'm always trying to figure out, you know, is this appropriate? Because I don't know, like my first book was 14 years ago. What's appropriate for a first time book now? And I'm not going to ask you to get in the numbers, but in in terms of like how those decisions are made, is it basically whether we're going to take a risk or not? The advance I'm assuming is based on what a publisher thinks it will make back, but still 
especially if they think there's other publishers interested. I'm assuming there's a delicate dance between we want to be competitive and not lose this contract or, you know, not lose this author because we want to publish them. But at the same time, we're only going to give them what we think we're going to make back. Is that right? Yeah, basically, you know, it's a imprecise science for sure. Sure. But yeah, you're, you're kind of going how much based on this person's platform, past sales, if they've written before the idea, the, the competition, all that kind of stuff, you're going, okay, how much do we think this book is going to sell? And you don't want to yeah, put out too large of an advance if you don't think it's going, at least has a, a shot at, at earning that much back. But like you said too, it matters about competition. Do other people want this book? How, you know, that gets interesting. And it's funny too, because a lot of authors and agents especially are really obsessed with getting a big advance. Sometimes it can be a bit of a curse though, right? If you get a big advance and the book just doesn't do as well, or even if it sells like decently well, but because the advance was so large, it's not perceived by that publishing house as a great success, right? Yeah. I remember, yeah, one of my books, I was talking to my editor. I'm like, okay, so, you know, how many books are we trying to sell here? And of course, as many as possible, right? But it's like, oh, you know, 30 to 50,000. And I was like, I don't think mom's (laughs) going to buy that many. I just don't (laughs) think she has it in her budget. Um, (laughs) And so I think that book sold, I don't know, 13, maybe 15,000, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, But for them, it wasn't great because it did have a larger advance. Anyway, so, and then I think the, the thing that's a little more fun at least as an author is to be able to earn out that advance because then it's sort of immaterial, right? Because you can earn money beyond the advance. That's right. When the checks start coming with those statements rather than, rather than just the statement that you can't (laughs) make it or tell it. That's the first thing I do. I put it up. I was like, is there a check? Shake it out. It's like that tells me your uncle, you shake it out for the the money. Yeah. (laughs) Trying to make like, okay, the ebook did this anyway. Okay. So uh, yeah, you get that deal points memo and you or your agent says, yes, it's a go. Or, you know, maybe you want to ask for something else like these days, typically uh, I'm always asking for more authors copies (laughs) and different publishers have different philosophies on that. So some publishers will be like, man, we're going to make it rain authors copies. And some are like, no, we like we really put a cap on it and that's fine. But you can make little tweaks or, you know, ask for things in a sense that, that that's a negotiation. And then once you kind of agree verbally or over email or what have you, the contract is now drafted up and you review that. You sign that thing, you send it back. And now let's talk about the writing editing process from That's there. That's where the terror sets in, by the way. You <laughs> That's right. Oh, now I got to actually produce this You're thing. Like, oh, crap. <laughs> like, yeah, this is all fun and games. Uh, now I've got eight months to crank out a manuscript. Yeah. Would I you say that's average? Because that would be my it. first question. Is like, I think most people would want to know, like, how long do authors usually get? In my experience, it's typically, if you're just doing, like, a one book, it's, it's different if you're doing, like, multiple books in a contract. But one book is typically a a year, maybe something like that from. Well, if you're Jared Wilson, it's six weeks, right? So <laughs> that's for, the, for the mortals. That's how long I, that's, that's how long I'm writing it. That's not how long it's. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's the panic writing at the end. I know how that that's works. Right. So no, you know, it, it varies, right? Of course. Uh, and I've done contracts for people. It's like, Hey, we'll see you in two years um, or even three because of their schedules and bandwidth. But in general, what I've found is eight months you don't get a, a, the book's not going to be a lot better if you give them longer than that. If you start cutting into that and going five or six months, then it's a bit yeah. of a crunch and, and quality can be sacrificed. So yeah, eight months is kind of generally how I think about it. If they have enough time in their schedule 
to yeah. really dedicate. Now that's from signing of contract to when the manuscript is due, right? That's right. And usually yeah. just because they've done a proposal, so they have two or three chapters already that they've written. They've obviously thought about it carefully. They're ready to go. Uh, sometimes maybe they have half the manuscript already completed. And and yeah, we're totally flexible because, and especially, you know, it's, it's different. I want to speak for all publishers because some of them are writing about the next election cycle or something. And it's like, oh man, we need to get this thing out pronto. So we give yeah. you maybe three or four months max, but we're a backlist publisher. That just means we make most of our money uh, off old books that just continue to sell. And so they're not as like timely in that way. And so we're not super picky about the timeline, but again, that just depends on the kind of books that you're, you're publishing. Yeah. So now when, a, by the time a manuscript is turned in, what's the time frame usually average from manuscript submission to it's actually out in a bookstore? Yeah, that can be like a year, man. We sit on it okay. like an egg. It's no, I mean, yeah. there's a lot happening, right? But it has to go through this whole editorial process, a three-step, at least in our case, editorial process. We got, you know, it comes in, I give it a big kind of macro edit, a chapter four should be chapter seven. Then it goes to a developmental editor who really tears into it and it's a deep dive. And then it goes to copy editing and all that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, marketing is ramping up, talking to the author, okay, what? how are we going to get the word out about this book? Uh, and then publicity and sales guys are going around and selling it into different places like Lifeway, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. So yeah, there's a lot going on during that process. And it can be frustrating for an author because man, you finish this thing, you kind of, hey, it's done. I want to see it in a, like a month and, you know, <laughs> on Amazon or something. Uh, but it takes, it, it's a, it's a very long game as you well know. Yeah. Tell me though, a little bit about that, the sales process, because like how much of that has changed because, you know, Christian, you know, yeah. bookstores are not, I mean, there's still some around obviously, but there's not really any major chains left that I'm aware of. There may be like smaller chains that are, you know, out there somewhere, but Lifeway and family and some of those are, are not, are non-existent now. What has changed in terms of the guy who's going out trying to sell the book to, you want to have copies of this on your shelf, right? He's trying to make that mm. pitch. Who is he making that picture? You mentioned Amazon. My impression was that Amazon, they just list every book because it's not shelf space for them. But right. is it? Is it warehouse space? What? Is, I mean, what's? So, yeah, the game's changing tremendously because um, physical bookstores are going bye-bye. I mean, there's still some some here and there. And for Christian bookstores, now the kind of growing edge I see are uh, bookstores in the lobby of in the foyer of a mega church, of right? A church, yeah, right, yeah, and so yeah. Um, that's interesting. So yeah, direct to ministries or churches—that's kind of a growing space. But yeah, the traditional bookstores are, and you know, Amazon is the number one outlet. No surprise there. And so yeah, I don't couldn't give you exact percentage, but that is it's huge. But yeah, there's still you know, Books a Million and, and Barnes and Noble and all these secular bookstores even that sell Christian books. And so that's one huge advantage of conventional publishing. Like when I, I have this conversation a lot with people, should, why not just self-pub, right? And, and that can certainly be legitimate. I have nothing against self-publishing. It can actually be more lucrative, right? If you have a big audience and you yeah. can get the book out, you can make 50% on each book. Whereas with a publisher, you're not going to make near that. But I think one of the main advantages, aside from the brilliant editorial input, from folks like me is that there are, there is a sales team that is meeting with these places that you don't have access to right. saying, Hey, can you buy some copies of this book? Yes. Of course, as a self-published author, you can get your book on Amazon. Uh, but these other places are still important as well. What I've noticed is, and I don't know how it works, but in the last several years, there are sort of, there's things you can do on Amazon. You can put in these sort of bells and whistles, right. For Amazon that create 
I don't know, higher profile for your book. I'm, I'm assuming that the publishers, I mean, they're the ones who are doing all that. I don't know how to do that. So the publishers are doing, are doing <laughs> yeah, something. We have yeah. people doing that. Yeah, that's okay. right. And yeah. And, and making the page look fancier and then even, you know, buying, I think you can, it's almost like Google words, right? You're paying. That's right to get the better search results on Amazon, right? Because that's how people find your book. It's like you go in there and you go, hey, I'm dealing with this problem. You can type it in. And and if your book comes up, often it's because a publisher has uh, paid to have that happen. So yeah, there are definite advantages like that. But don't ask me too much because I don't know (laughs) how to do that. Well, and yeah. Well, and even for readers out there as well. So say, you know, you're just listening to this out of curiosity's sake. You just love books. You're not, you're not trying to write or anything. Um, there's a reason Amazon reviews are actually really important. And, yeah. and again, I, I don't know the algorithm. I don't know how that works necessarily, but the greater number of reviews somehow impacts the visibility. So if you really liked a book, you don't have to write a big 10 paragraph review, but just to go and, say, love the book and click, you know, star rating on there. We the more that. of those love that you, and you're right. Yes. It doesn't have to be long. Just, just write genius. That's all. There you go. Genius. A master, a masterpiece, <laughs> a, masterpiece. <laughs> a towering work of, yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite reviews like are people that'll be like, I love this book. So helpful. Three stars. I'm like, what, <laughs> what? <laughs> what happened? Oh. My favorite are the zero or one stars because it wasn't what they thought they had ordered or it wasn't what they thought it was or, or, or the something like that, you know, bent. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My mailman bent the cover one star. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what, yeah. But, but the more reviews you have, that's right. Like if, if you're you really wanting to know, like how, how can I bless authors that I like go and give those, you know, their books, good star reviews. You don't have to be, uh, you know, verbose on there um, because those really do actually help the visibility for authors. All right. So that in-between stage now, you've got maybe maybe a year, the manuscript is done and the book's going to come out a year later. You mentioned you have sort of less than that. Usually not a full year, but anyway, you know, yeah. You've got at Moody a three-tiered process of editing. It's going to come back with yeah, you know, for me, it's a it's, it's a, yeah, it's a word doc with with changes track, and then usually there's some kind of document that the editor will send saying here are the thoughts. Like you said, if there's major things like chapter four should be chapter seven or vice versa, they'll be in that section, and then there'll just be notes, and you just go through and you kind of decide yay or you know do I agree or do I not agree or am I going to follow their advice or not follow their advice? And typically, it's smart to follow their advice because. Editors look at a lot of books and a lot of different kinds of books, and they know the success their publisher has with books. So unless it's just totally violating the wrong attitude, right, Drew, is to go and go and I am an artist. You, you don't go to Picasso and say, you know, that, that square should be down in the lower right corner, don't you think? You know? um, yeah, 100%. And here's the funny thing. Uh, this may sound bad, but the people who give you the most pushback on edits and who are more precious about their words are first-time authors. Okay, right? yeah. Nonsense. Whereas the the people who are pros, they you know, this is their seventh or eighth book or something like that, and they know how it it works, and that usually that the input actually makes the book better, will just be like, yeah, I want what works. And that doesn't yeah. mean they, they might fight on certain points, and they may might be right, that's fine. But they their interest is not like, uh, what can preserve my beautiful, perfect words, but what works? What's actually going to impact readers? And often it's a question of like, us going, okay, that's cute, but let's be clear. 
right? Yeah, <laughs> you might right. like the way you phrase something, but maybe it's a little bit unclear and, and we're editing to make it clear. So it can be painful, but it is worth it. And 95% of the time, a book is better because of the edits. Yeah. And, and, and I would say probably like 90% of the time, I just say, yeah, accept change, accept change, accept right. change. Or if it says, what about this word instead of this word? I'm like, yeah, that's probably good. I put that word in there. The 10% remaining is, will be things where I'm thinking, well, I just, that doesn't sound like me or it doesn't yeah. really represent necessarily what I'm trying to do. Maybe there's a, a middle way here. Maybe there's a third option where I can change this, but not to necessarily what you're asking for, but something that we can both agree is okay. You know, those sorts right. of things. Yeah. But yeah. by and large, yeah, the majority of those things are always good suggestions that make the book better and stronger and a lot of times leaner as well. So you get beyond that big sort of overview and then there's a more granular, usually the next stage is now we're looking really at the the nitty gritty of grammar, composition, punctuation, those sorts of things, sort of the copy editing kind of stuff. But the fun thing is there are always typos that you missed that will show up only when the book is printed. I don't know what that is, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, well, there's one poster and I won't, I I won't name them, but there's a significant typo. I don't even know what I guess it would be considered a typo in the endorsements because it was copied and pasted out of an email and they copied the greeting from the email. That's unconscionable. That publisher (laughs) should be. Yeah. Okay. Be careful. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Oh, Jared. All right. That was for your sanctification. Yeah, I yeah. Well, it was for it was for it was for my something. That's for sure. It did it did something for me. Um, okay, so yeah, so the book is done now. Let's say it's it's accepted. Uh, let's let's back up a second. Different publishers work their payments differently. So a lot of publishers, if they're get, if they're offering an advance on a book, it's typically well, some will be here's how you get half the advance when you turn the manuscript in, or and this sometimes is tricky too. Some publishers say on receipt of an acceptable manuscript where yeah, for some that just means sign the contract half when you yeah. turn in an acceptable manuscript. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you get half when you sign the contract and then half on an acceptable manuscript. And for some publishers in my experience and gosh, I, I should probably count up, you know, how many publishers I've, I've worked with, but for some, that just means you turned it in. It met the word count. It's, but for <laughs> right. others, it's like, no, we're waiting till we get to the end of that editorial editorial process. Everything is done. And now it's an acceptable manuscript. So if you're thinking, you know, in my first few books, like I think with Crossway, I turned the manuscript in 30 days later, I'm getting the second half of the advance with other publishers. It's, you know, there can be, you know, months after that of the editorial work before it's considered acceptable. Mm. But then there's other publishers where they break it up into threes, right? So Baker will say you get a third of the advance on contract, a third on the manuscript, and then the third once the book is published. So the book comes oh, out, you get the final, you get the final third there. Let's talk about the sales marketing people just for a moment. So there's a whole side of this thing that is still somewhat mysterious to me also, where it's the folks who are not necessarily dealing with your manuscript, but on the marketability of it. So back cover copy, the design of the thing, and then especially the cover. Let's talk about book covers because those are Ooh, that's the thing yes. people are interested in. How is it that a, that a, a book's cover is decided upon? What, what's that process? 
Yeah, well, it, it is collaborative because the author hopefully should be involved somewhat, right? The way we do it, we have them fill out an input form where they're, it's like, okay, questions about what your aesthetic is, you know, yeah. asking questions about what the heart of the book is, any dominant metaphors or images that, that are in the book that you'd like to see on the cover, that kind of thing. And you get authors that have, you know, particular requests. Like I have one author, he's like, I never want a little white church on the cover. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> that's good, which yeah. I get, right. It's like, yeah. Um, and then of course, what we usually, I never want to see people. Oh, that, so that weird. Cause I, I just think, well, just like illustrative, you know, drawings of people, I just feel like they can just be really hit or miss. And yeah, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what, what yeah. you usually want is a guy standing on top of a mountain with his arms up in the air <laughs> or in a wheat right. field, you know, that's stock the, photo. <laughs> that, that's what we're going for. Um, <laughs> well, we were at least 10 years ago, it seems yeah. anyway, but then, you know, the, we have a, a creative director. Uh, some of it is in-house. Some of it sometimes is a freelance person out of house that designs the cover and they'll usually give a few options, right? and send them to the, the, well, in our case, to the editor who then sends it to the author. Hey, what do you think of these, these options? And yeah. sometimes the stars align and they go, I like number two, let's do it. Done. Awesome. Uh, yeah. But often it's like, yeah, I like that, but can we do a different color? Can we make the image bigger or smaller? Can we make my name bigger? Or in my case, I asked for um, a huge picture of my face on the cover of my latest book. <laughs> and that was shot down. Sadly. Um, I wanted to be like that, Joel Osteen. That's surprising. That's surprising. Yeah. <laughs> At least in that regard. Yeah. But, <laughs> that's yeah. when you know you've arrived, by the way, when you get a big fat picture of your face on the cover of a book. That's what a friend of mine just said to me. He, he just said, like, I'll know that you've made it when the next book has you as you're on the front of it. <laughs> <laughs> Folding your yeah. arms and smiling. Yes, that's right. That's good. That's good. Okay. So yeah, the cover, um, you get usually some alternatives some variations of things. Sometimes they're, they're pretty different on this most recent book that I was working on. I gave like two different vibes that I really liked and said, either one of these directions would be great. And what I got was basically eight samples, four of them fit one vibe and four of them fit a different vibe. One of them was very colorful. One was very simple, Hmm. more kind of modern simplistic type thing. And I really liked both of those ideas. But I got varieties in both fields, which was good, but it made it difficult too to kind of narrow things down. You make suggestions and then eventually you arrive. What about title changes, man? That That's happened to me a number of times where oh, yeah. the publisher was like, your title isn't going to oh, sell. It usually isn't going to be the final title. Yeah. At the same time, an author has to be happy and excited about the title, right? So it's a collaborative yeah. thing, but I like it when they're open to that. Okay, hey, listen. And sometimes if they have a great title right off the bat, hey, let's stick with it, especially if the book's kind of built around that title. But yeah, we have a whole titling team that that discusses it. And it's a painstaking process, man, because it's like obviously super important, right? And you're always juggling between like, okay, do we try to be cryptic and cool and intriguing? Or should we just be clear, <laughs> right? And it's like, and sometimes it's like, if the if the title is is like Mysterioso, then you want to be super clear in the subtitle so people actually know what this thing's about. Yeah. So it's it's a balancing act and it's it's tough. Absolutely. But it's worth spending the time on because of course it's super important, especially in a time where people don't walk into a bookstore as much and actually look at a cover and leaf through it. They just, you know, the title is is huge. Yeah. The biggest I've kind of come for you know full circle on that because starting out as a novelist and then working into nonfiction, my titles tend to be in my mind, creative, yeah. but in the publish in the publisher's mind, unclear, right? Like they're more vibey than they are communicating exactly. 
And I had the biggest back and forth, the biggest fight over a title on the book that ended up being my best-selling book. So, mm. and, and, and they won, I gave it, you know, we eventually, I just sort of like, all right, we, we arrived at a thing that we both could be okay with. And it ended up being the best selling, you know, book of mine. So I thought, okay, I need to not be married to my first vision any, anymore and actually listen to. Yeah. That's yeah, the cool thing about publishing. It's collaborative. And, and usually you come to a better title cover book because of that collaboration. So that's kind of the fun part yeah. of it. All right, let's shift gears just a second here. Let's talk about some of the controversial uh, things people want to know about. So let's talk about oh, yeah, plagiarism right. for yes for a moment here. Explain <laughs> to me how this continues to happen. My last several books, maybe all of them, but I've been aware of this for probably the last I don't know five years or so or more. Um, they go, they're submitted to some kind of system like they take the, the manuscript and they run it through some kind of software or yep, some kind of right. something and it pings all this stuff here's this is similar or it's identical or whatever to mm -hmm. other things um i'm always encouraged when those things come back and what they're finding is stuff that i have written previously yes, right i was just gonna say I've <laughs> you pulled this hey, paragraph this on the blog, blog post yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> i'm like well i know it's the author stuff. we're really close <laughs> it's usually <laughs> stuff from previous blog posts that i've reworked or something but are other publishers just not doing that? Like, how, how does the system fail that plagiarized work keeps getting published? I think we're going to see a lot less of it because of the software that you're talking okay. about. I wish I could remember the name. And maybe it's proprietary secret. I shouldn't say anyway, yeah. but I can't remember the name. But yes, we have this thing that this this magical software that scans the whole Internet and and will pull things up. And it's amazing. And sometimes like I want to give the benefit of the doubt to authors because sometimes it's that oh man, I read this Tim Keller chapter and it was in my head. And then I started writing my book and just kind of regurgitated some of that. Of course, sometimes it's, there's no way it was copy and pasting, right? Because no one has a memory that good. So I guess the first thing is don't do it because now you're going to get busted. You, you could probably get away with it 10 years ago, but now I think, I don't know if every publisher is doing this, I would think um, at this point is running it through that software to kind of, you know, cover themselves. Um, and you're not going to get away with it. Now, you know, the chat GPT is going to introduce a whole new <laughs> dynamic to this, right? Kids are oh, already man. Like, <laughs> using that for homework. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's, it's incredible to me that, and often it's like, oh, well, I was looking at these secondary sources and I incorporated them and didn't uh, properly attribute. And I get that pastors too are prone. They, they, they're so used to preaching and borrowing from people um, in a way that wouldn't pass like academic <laughs> protocols um, that they can bring that into their writing. So sometimes it's an honest mistake, but you do have to be more careful. You do have to attribute it. It only takes a second too to be like, Hey, this person put it this way, right? It's, it's not yeah. a big deal. It doesn't, you don't lose credibility. There's just no reason to do it. I probably didn't yeah. answer your question, but no, no, you get it. At, at, at the end of my book, the gospel, according to Satan, I retold, it was an illustration that Tim Keller used which was him retelling a Dick Lucas story about Billy Graham, oh. I think going to Cambridge or maybe it was Oxford. And I was so moved by the illustration. So it's not original to Keller. It's original to Dick Lucas. Right. And so I found that source, but I also just wanted to nod to say, I heard about this from Tim Keller. It wasn't like I was brilliant enough to mine the works, you know, yeah. that I didn't come about this on my own. And I especially included to say that, like, this is me kind of retelling and retelling because 
it was shortly after the conference where Keller had shared that illustration and maybe he shared it elsewhere. I don't know, but it was shortly after that conference that he did that. And I thought somebody could read the book and go, well, he just got right. this from Keller, right. you know, and I just at least wanted to nod and go, yes, this is where yeah. I, even if you I put it in the this. footnote, right. That right. This is where I stumbled across this. Yeah. Um, yeah. The only thing you did wrong there is you, you should say my best friend, Tim Keller. Oh, okay. Yeah, you got a name drop a little bit. That's the. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. I'm learning stuff, man. I'm learning things. Even, as even a, if they just liked one of your good. tweets one time, you know, you yeah. can, think you can say. You know, friend. speaking of Keller, one of the things that I think we run into trouble with, and I don't know if it's real trouble, but the plagiarism issue, there's these phrases and phraseology, particularly in kind of the gospel centered tribe. But right. I think just in general, things that are become sort of in the ether, in the water. They've become somewhat cliches. So like, I always attribute the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z. I attribute that to Keller. I don't know where he said that. Hmm. He might not even been the origin of it, but I'm fairly certain it was him. But there's things like that, that sometimes we just say, I've been credited with what you win them with is what you win them to. I don't think I originated that phrase. I don't know who did. I can't really, I can't find it. I've looked for that. When I see that quoted, it's usually, if it's attributed, it's usually attributed to me. (laughs) And, but sometimes it's just quoted and I'm fine with it. Like it's out there. I've heard that hundreds. Yeah. It's just out there. Yeah, exactly. It's a thing in the ether. There's things like that. I think that maybe. Did you write, did I write what? Did you write footprints? (laughs) No, but I did do a joke on it not too long ago where uh, somebody made a mug out of it. I forgot what the joke was. I made a joke about it. And somebody created a, a coffee mug with the footprints picture and my little quote from it and sent it to me. <laughs> it was something about like where there was one. I, it was That's when I dragged your sorry butt or something. Like that. <laughs> um, okay. So, yeah, the plagiarism thing should be going away. We've done entire episodes on on pastoral plagiarism before. So we don't need to dig too deeply there, but it's connected to, in in my mind, to another issue, which is, I think maybe a little plagiarism seems, unless you're just listening to certain voices, plagiarism seems more black and white. Most people are like, yeah, you shouldn't pass off another's work as your own. Even if in preaching, some people argue that it's okay. Publishing, you're dealing with people's rights and other, you know, copyrighted materials. So it's, it's ethically wrong to do that. And you can be getting legal trouble for doing that. What about ghostwriting? Talk to me about the ethics of ghostwriting. How should we think about that? Yeah, I mean, man, I and I can't speak for the whole industry. My thoughts on I'm pretty I'm kind of down on it. I know you are too. And and maybe that's a little bit of just like when you're a writer yourself, an author, you kind of go, come on, man, there are these people just by virtue (laughs) of being famous or having a platform that get a whole team of people or maybe just one person glancing at their they're listening to their sermon for a bit and then writing a whole book for them. And the problem I, I see with it, at least ghostwriting as in like this person's just writing every word of this book for this other person, is that I think it's dishonest because I, and I've asked people, like if you're just a reader, when you buy a book from someone, it's got their name on the cover, maybe their face, they envision this person sitting down at a desk with a laptop, <laughs> tapping out every word. They really do, right? Now, I know from being on, you know, behind the curtain, a little bit that that's often not the case. And, and so I feel like there's a bit of a bait and switch that goes on. Now, having said that, I think there is an ethical way to do it because not everyone has that gift of, even if you're a great communicator, right? Um, from a pulpit or stage, 
you may not have the gift of writing. But if you are going to hire help, if you're going to work with a writer to to help render your message uh, better, it has to be highly collaborative, not just like, hey, I'll send you some sermons and you listen to those and crank out a manuscript. Because I could tell you stories, man. I'm sure you have them too. But I remember <laughs> I remember this one friend of mine who was a ghostwriter getting a book that this guy wrote and he sent him a copy. And he he flipped to the acknowledgments page to see what he said about him. And he's like, he didn't even mention me. And I was like, yeah. how much of this book did you write? He's like, every word, right? I mean, he was just <laughs> like, and to me, that's just wrong on so many levels. So, and, and here's the thing too, at least I can tell, like, especially, okay, say there's a guy, he's got a monster church with 27 campuses and he's speaking all over the world and he's cranking out a book every six months. I'm like, how's that working? Like if you're doing the math, you realize, no, right. he's not doing that. He's got a team writing the stuff for him. Often it's, it's pretty insipid, ghost-written yeah. schlock. You can kind of tell, or it's just very unoriginal. It doesn't feel fresh. Anyway, so I, I think it actually is the, the, the final product is worse for it as well, oftentimes. So yeah, I, I'm pretty down on it. I know it happens a lot. Uh, I'm fortunate in the sense that I work for a publisher that doesn't play that game as much because we just don't go and find like super famous people and say, hey, we'll go write a book for you. But I know that happens. Yeah. You know, pastors are approached when their church blows up. Hey, you want to write a book? Well, I can't write. That's okay. We got uh, this guy here for you that'll write the book. And I hope that's a practice that we'll see less and less of. Let me put it that way. Yeah. I mean, my first sort of exposure to that, this was even a thing. I mean, I knew ghostwriting existed, but that was reached certain levels was, I mean, this was years ago, it was before I was published, but I was, you know, doing editorial work and, you know, research work and things like that. And I was approached about ghostwriting a book for a best-selling Christian author who's, who has sold, you know, everybody would know his name if I said it. He sells probably millions of books. He has a lot of books over the last 30, 40 years. And I thought, oh, he doesn't write his own book. Like that just blew my mind. First of all, he right. doesn't write his own books. And secondly, yeah. I was like, is it just a different person every time? Or maybe he wrote the first few and now it's sort of like his, if you put his name on it, the book's going to sell because he's a best-selling guy. Now he can kind of outsource some of that work. So it was my first sort of taste that this is a real thing. Then of course, over the years, I've discovered it's even, you know, more pervasive than, than I thought. I, I do think it's, it's very unethical to especially if someone is just doing all the original work and then you put your name on it. I just, right. I don't see how, I don't see how that's not lying. It's, right. di it's different. It's <laughs> different. Like some people will say, well, like, what about speechwriters, Jared? Just political speechwriters. You know, the president gets up, he gives a speech. You know, he didn't write that speech. I'm like, well, we know who the speechwriters are. Like you can see right. they're on staff. They may not be credited in the speech itself, but I can look up who writes the speeches for which president. And, and we know that. This is, at least in the Christian world, to me, it just seems like it's a, a shade too gray, I think. Here's the crazy thing. Often, if you are not mentioned at all on the cover, because sometimes there'll be the with someone, right? Yeah, that's right. Right? But if you are willing to not have your name on the cover at all, you'll actually get paid more, right? So you're getting paid for oh, your Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, that's huh. wild. <laughs> well, great. Um, I mean, this is a great Matt Chandler story. So I've done some collaborative things before where I have served as an assisting author, I guess I should say, uh, I, I think it's, it's, I'm essentially working with sermon transcripts. So I'm not starting with a blank page, right? It's not even me listening to something and then sort of trying to recreate it in my, in my own words. I'm, I'm starting with, with written documents. And I've done this for a number of guys where you've got the transcript of what they preached, 
and I'm just shaping it up editorially to look more yeah, like that is uh, different, you know, because that's the quality. Material. Material. Yeah, right. Um, there's been a few of those guys who did. Yeah, they put me in the acknowledgments of, of the books. And that's fine. I never required that or contracted that that was you know necessary. Matt Chandler was the first guy to put my name on the cover of the book. So it'll say Matt Chandler with Jared Wilson. And that's I'm not a co-writer, but I took his transcripts, shaped them up and he put my name. He wanted to be so transparent about it. That's cool. And then, yeah, and there was even um, I think the rights to explicit gospel were up and I think it was his IVP UK and they didn't want to put my name on the cover of the book. Because over there, I guess, how it was positioned to me was, this is not how we do things over here, and it, you know, that sort of thing. And Matt said, no, his name needs to be on the cover of the book, <laughs> which I thought was, wow, that was, you know, he was even willing to go there. And then they approached me and said, is it right if we take your name off the cover of the book? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, take my name off. It's like, it's just better the book goes out. But it just really was heartwarming to me that Matt was like, no, That's don't cool. do that. So. It was a very sweet thing, but yeah. That's funny. Um, yeah, so Ghost Friday. Yeah, so one, uh, one qualifier I'll give, yeah. though, is that when I start my mega church, I'm going <laughs> to hire a whole team of ghost writers, impoverished writers, to crank out manuscripts under my name. Okay. Let's live with the dream. Well, so this, I mean, apart from the ethical thing, or at least the issue of honesty or dishonesty, I mean, you mentioned, you alluded to this in when you first started responding, just the idea that this is horning in kind of on the, those who have gifts who can never get published or won't get published because these guys who are known for other things, being great speakers or great builders of things, leaders of things, they're horning in on, on that market, um, putting their names on stuff. And I almost just want to say like, why can't we just stay in our lanes? Like I'm right. not, there's not a ghost, you know, mega church, you know, pastor. Like I, I, I'm not walking up into your pulpit on, so you stay out of my lane. I'll stay out of your lane. <laughs> Let the writers write and the preachers preach. Sometimes it's the same guy, the preachers who can write and vice versa. But a lot of times it's like, if that's not your lane, just stay out of it. Like, I feel like in the kingdom, man, we should have this mentality of letting the gifted people use their gifts and not trying to kind of use other people's gifts for our own, our own credit. Yeah, I hear you. I'm always, I always find it refreshing when I, I'll talk to a pastor who is, yeah, maybe a great preacher. And he's like, yeah, writing is just not my thing. And I'm yeah. like, so you never thought of writing a book? No, that's not my thing. And that's fine. And that's not to say that every pastor should, like, I mean, I, I talk to pastors all the time and try to convince them to write books. And I think many should. But if that's not your particular gifting, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I'm going to leave the writing to writers, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and I think it helps, too, if we have more books that are beautifully, creatively written and those do better, then publishers will take more chances on authors that, well, it's a, it's a circle there chicken or anything, right? But if if books like that get out there, that maybe the person, hey, I don't know who this person is, but it's a great topic and the writing was beautiful and effective. Hey, that's awesome, right? But unfortunately, the world we live in, <laughs> often platform is, is so important that people are willing to go, hey, I'm going to buy this book from this person because they're famous. And the here's another issue. This is probably a bunny trail, but the ministry space is so aspirational too, right? Like I won't read this book about topic X unless I want to be like that person writing the book. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? I've had a heck of a time getting preaching books to work, for instance, because unless it's a preaching book by Tim Keller or Rick Warren or Andy Stanley or someone like that, who's famous, no one wants to read it because they want to be that guy. Right. And so that's part of this too. Often people are reading a book, not just because they're interested in the topic, but because they aspire to be the author. I know a lot of the sales of my books come from just that, Jared. So, 
It's an evil <laughs> dynamic, and yet I'm stuck with I it. I too, I too want to yawn at tigers. <laughs> if Drew's learned how to yawn at a tiger, I want to do that. Come That's here. a good note to end on, man. Um, gosh, I could keep going and going. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> next year we'll do part three. three. Maybe. I think people are maybe a little burnt out by this point. Yeah, but, they, but they, I'm ten so, minutes ago they they clicked off. <laughs> they clicked off. Brother, I appreciate you giving up your time. Um, oh, it's, no it's worries. Talk with you. It's been yeah. a joy, man. Geeking out about publishing. If you enjoy the podcast, your listener, give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at FTC. This resource is brought to you by Midwest Resources Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.